0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I have always loved the water. From an early age, I delighted in going to local swimming pools, especially once I got past an aversion to having my face in the water. We've all, most of us can relate to that. There's something heavenly about moving around in sunlit water. Rivers have long fascinated me, both the Ozark streams I frequently floated with my dad and the mighty Mississippi, which I loved to gaze on when we went to Memphis. I like to imagine the people who had moved up and down those waterways in various ages and the places the waterways connected. Not until I was about 15 did I stand on an ocean beach. After a long day of driving down to the Gulf Coast that spring with a friend's family, I walked by myself from our beach cottage down to the shoreline. On that moonlit night, with the tide coming in, I had what I must call a religious experience. I had a sense of transcending time and space and of connecting with God as I faced the expanse and power of the deep and felt the wind under a starry sky. Given this and subsequent good experiences of water, I reacted positively last summer when I viewed photographic art by Pablo Hinoves, which was displayed in St. Paul's Cathedral in London the artist juxtaposed images of the cathedral's interior with images of churning seawater. In different photographs, the viewer looks up and down the cathedral's nave with floodwaters covering all but the tops of the rounded side arches and the domed arches overhead. A flooded cathedral. In another picture, the viewer sees the top of the canopy over the high altar surmounted by images of the risen Christ above a flooded chancel with white caps. The ocean in the midst of a glorious classical cathedral, what could be more splendid, I thought. Yet these images are not meant to be unambiguously positive they were exhibited as part of a program known as Just Water 2017, which was designed to encourage reflection on water as both a vital necessity and as a potentially destructive force. For example, at one extreme, the very cultivated historic city of Cape Town, South Africa, now has such a water shortage that they may soon have nothing coming out of their taps. Hard to believe. But at the other extreme, Miami Beach has a $400 million plan to protect the resort city from rising sea levels. This latter view of water as a potentially destructive force predominates in the Bible. I mean, there are some positives, like Jesus says, you know, he gives people living water and all that. But predominantly, Water is a mysterious, potentially destructive force. It all starts in Genesis, the first of whose writers depicts God creating order out of the primordial elements. The sea represented an original chaos which God tamed by putting the water in confined places, some of it under the earth, some of it on the earth in seas which were separated from dry land, and some of it above the earth, beyond the dome of the sky. Rain or snow came from the waters above the earth through little openings in this dome, kind of like an upside-down bowl. But with any luck, the dome would hold back the waters enough, waters above the earth, to prevent a return to the original watery chaos. We go on to read in Genesis that at one point the early humans' luck apparently ran out, or almost. God was so upset with their violence and depravity that God tried for a fresh start, opening the gates of the heavenly dome and destroying all living creatures with flood waters, except for the righteous Noah and his family, along with pairs of all other species. New life, of course, did begin, based on a remnant of the old, but people still feared and marveled at the potentially destructive power of water. In Psalm 69, for example, the psalmist prays, Let not the torrent of waters wash over me, neither let the deep swallow me up. Certainly the the reluctant prophet Jonah, who ended up in the belly of the great fish, of course, could relate to that prayer. The Red Sea in Exodus at first seemed an insurmountable obstacle to Moses and the Israelites as they fled from slavery in Egypt, and it did destroy their pursuers, you remember. In the Gospels, we see Jesus' disciples afraid of the power of wind and wave as they cross the Sea of Galilee. Of course, he assures them, but they're afraid. Metaphorically speaking, the early church was on a dangerous sea fearing that chaos and destruction would come upon them in the midst of persecution. Today, of course, if we are paying attention, we see great waves, both literally and metaphorically, that threaten to engulf us. The sites of many of today's major cities are threatened with inundation due to rising sea levels in the coming century. Our civilization seems fragile as we face mass shootings, opioid addiction, huge numbers of refugees, political polarization, racism, sexism, and so on. On this first Sunday in Lent, a preacher might therefore be inclined to present a gloomy picture, emphasizing God's wrathful indignation even toward us Christians who, unlike Jesus in today's gospel, yield to temptation time and again thereby contributing to the threat of a return to chaos but i'm not going to do that <laughs> because we are here for a different purpose we are here primarily to celebrate we're here even in lent we celebrate today and every day we celebrate our deliverance from the flood waters through the grace of god no matter how much we may have fallen short of the glory God intends for us. We may deserve to be drowned, but we're not. We're saved. Consider, first of all, what today's Old Testament reading reveals about God's nature. After the flood subsided, God made a covenant with creation that it would never again be destroyed in a flood. And this had, amazingly, no strings attached. There was no requirement of creation to uh, merit that. God just simply declared that. This this salvation from the flood did not depend on people's good behavior. God stuck with those he loved knowing that they would disappoint him time and again. As one commentator put it, the ancient Hebrews perceived that God was inherently self-giving Willing to enter into a relationship that put limits on even God's prerogatives. This is, of course, the way of all genuine relationships. Limiting yourself, sacrificing yourself out of love. We do make amazing sacrifices at times for those we love. But God goes far beyond us in that. New Testament writers took great pains to proclaim the gospel that in Jesus, God had saved his people even in the midst of their sins and doubts and fears. Thanks be to God. It doesn't depend on us becoming sinless or uh, rock solid in our faith or without fear. Even in our weakness, Christ has saved us and does save us and will save us. In our baptism, today's reading from 1 Peter emphasizes, God brought us through the floodwaters to land us safely on dry ground, just as Noah and his family were saved. And also, by the way, as the Israelites were delivered from slavery through the threatening waters of the Red Sea. Amazingly, today's epistle also notes that God in Christ was determined to save even those who in earlier generations had disobeyed him. This belief is behind those wonderful icons that depict the risen Christ reaching down to lift up from their graves fallen humanity from Adam and Eve onwards. We are those who through grace have been delivered from the flood waters. We've died with Christ in his death, and we have already been raised with him in his resurrection. St. John the Divine, in his revelation, describes his vision of the redeemed multitude as those who, because they look to the Lamb of God for salvation, have come out of the great ordeal. John was writing to people who were suffering. They felt like they were in the middle of an ordeal, but... There are also those, um, even even those on earth at the time, had already in a sense come out of the great ordeal through their salvation that baptism uh, uh, points to. The first letter of Peter was likewise written to encourage the suffering early church with assurance that they were safe on dry ground despite all evidence to the contrary. In this quotation, the uh, author is saying instead of from the floodwaters to the dry ground, we have the metaphor of being taken from darkness to light. First Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a a holy nation, God's own people in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're already a holy nation. We're already secure in God. I absolutely love the end of this epistle today, which says that uh, Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. There's no chaos. There's no flood that is not under his control. God's control through him. The letter to the Hebrews, also to written to persecuted early Christians, declares that we, the baptized, inherit a kingdom that can never be shaken. may feel like it, but it can never be shaken. This kingdom's king is Jesus Christ, who Hebrews tells us is the same yesterday and today and forever. Wonderful image of rock-solid stability and a, uh, uh, a blessed assurance to all generations. This is the good news that Jesus and the early church proclaimed and embodied. The good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to bring freedom, health, and salvation. It is our joy this Lent to take this truth of how much we are loved more and more fully to heart.